Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. I'm going to review where we are in the middle of the first paragraph, then we'll pick up from there. I will share three interpretations of the paragraph as a whole, briefly, and then Meyer has came across, or he either came across or he researched, I'm not sure which, an interpretation by former Chief Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs, uh, who thinks and writes very well about text. So we'll, we'll see what Rabbi Sachs said, and Meyer dropped it into the chat also, and then we'll see what other people want to add by way of personal reflections. So we're in the middle. So listen up, Israel. Hashem, our deity, Hashem alone, Hashem is one, and you must command form, vihavta, love, Hashem, your God. We're going to come back. to We said that that's puzzling. How can you command an emotion? We're going to come back to that question. So you must love Hashem, your God, with all your mind, with all your being, and with all your muchness or resources. These words, and we said last time these words could either be the words of Moshe's speech in Deuteronomy or the words of all of Deuteronomy or the words of the Torah in their entirety. These words, which I command you today, should be in your mind. I think, we, I think we left off there last time. Okay, so here we go, moving forward. You should teach them, although um, normally teach would be basically means to teach in a repetitive kind of way, like to rehearse something over and over again. So it's not just, I'm going to teach you this one thing, but I'm going to, uh, it has... It's, it's, it's somewhere between teaching and inculcating. Inculcating is a more abstract word, so I'm not sure it's that abstract. Um, and Chazal, the sages in the Talmud, always take lishanein to mean to sharpen, right? You, you to hone, H-O-N-E. You, um, you develop something better and better and better, by sharpening it, by going over it over and over again. So it's teach, but it has the sense of teach in an intensive, repetitive way, which we would say in English means something like to educate or inculcate. So, but for simple word, I'll just say teach. Teach your children vidibartabam and talk about them. What's them? These words. It doesn't refer to children, right? That would be a funny joke, right? People do that. They teach their children and they talk about their children. But that's not what it means. Teach your children and talk of those words. The bomb refers to the divarim. When should you talk about those words? So we have here two pairs. We're going to have more pairs later on. But these first pair is when you're dwelling at home and when you're walking on the way. So this could be a, a, a pshat, literary pshat, simple meaning. It could just be a merism, 
Merism is when you say from soup to nuts, it means to include everything in between. So if it's a merism, while you're dwelling at home and walking on the way, could be another way of saying everywhere, right? In your whole awake life. So it could mean everywhere or it could mean all the time. Because ulech the chava derech has the connotation of when I'm outside of my house. So you could think of this metaphor or if you want to separate out and say it's not, it's not just doesn't mean all the time. It actually means two different conditions. You could say that this metaphorically means um, in your private life and in your public life. Bevetecha is your home. It's your individual life, your family. It's something you know, that connotes one sphere of life. Lech Tchavaderech is when you're out there in the world. We might say, you know, when you're in public, in your work, in your persona out to the world. So you should talk about these words when, all the time, or everywhere, at home and abroad, or both in your personal when I say personal, I don't mean individual alone, but in it, the way you conduct your home and the way you conduct your life outside of the home. Okay, so that's one pair. When you lie down and when you get up. So again, that could be a merism for all the time, 24, as we say, as we say in modern, 24-7. Right, so uvishach b'chav kumecha could mean twenty four seven. Chazal, we'll talk about the sages, uh, you know, the classic rabbinic interpretation of the paragraph in a few moments. But you know, Chazal say that this refers to saying the words of the Shema in the morning and at night. That it doesn't mean dwell on these words all the time, but that it means halachically, right, to say these words literally v'dibar tabam when when you're going to sleep and when you rise up in the morning, you say Shema twice a day. Why does it start with sleep? Normally we think morning, the day starts with morning and then evening, but Jewishly it's evening and then morning, right? So you start with, so you're, I'm going to put it in quotes, your first Shema of the day is at night, Marif, right? And then your second Shema of the day is in the morning if you follow the Jewish calendar. So that's when you should talk about them. And, and again, should, it's not should, it's a command. Vishinan Tam is a command. Vidibarta, um, it's, you know, it, it's, as they say in old fashioned English, I believe it's thou shall, I think uh, is how the King James Bible would say it, right? Or you shall as a command. Uh, Ilana? Oh, I was just going to, thou shalt. Thou shalt. Thank you for correcting me. Thou shalt. Okay. Ukshartam laot al yadecha. Tie it, bind it as a sign or marker on your hand. Vayula totafot beinecha. Totafot is a very rare biblical word. In fact, I think it might be a hapax. I'm not sure it appears anywhere else in the Tanakh. So very various interpretations about what it means, but um, I believe the common English translation that we all grew up with is frontlet, whatever that means. But presumably, if there's a sign that you wear on your arm, then there's a thing that you wear on your head. So it could be like a diadem or a headband or, you know, some 
something that a person would wear on their head. And of course, Chazal took this to mean commanding the mitzvah for tefillin, which I'm still wearing because I didn't have time to take it off. Um, right? So buying these words, again, words of the Shema or words of Torah on your hand and put them in front of your eyes. Um, um, in the shot, again, biblical original meaning in context that probably is not about tefillin. It pro- the, um, to bind some, to have something be on your hand is used elsewhere in the Bible, in the Tanakh, to mean, it's some sense of meaning very, very close to you. It's almost like a, it's like a tattoo, but one step shy of a tattoo, right? Um, something that you wear very close to you uh, is something that you have on you always. Um, so this is used as a metaphor for being very, very close to you um, elsewhere in the Bible. So it could just, in shot, it could mean just metaphorically, and you must have these words as close to you as something that would stick to your skin or be wrapped around your head. Or, metaphorically, um, yad connotes action, bene necha connotes mind. So a way of understanding that metaphorically is words of Torah, God's instructions should imbue your actions and your thinking. So that's another way of understanding that merism, that pair. Okay. Uh, Or if we see it really as a merism, right, from soup to nuts, then it could mean all of you, right? You know, your hand and your mind, your actions and your thinking or vision, right? Meaning all aspects of your self. So that could be another way of seeing that pair. So we have a th- that was a third pair, and then we have a fourth pair, uchtav tam al mezuzot beitecha uvisharecha, and inscribe them on the doorposts of thine house and upon thine gates, thine thy thy gates. Um, gates in biblical Hebrew does not mean the thing that leads to your driveway or your front yard in Los Angeles. Okay, uh, gates means. Um, the gates of your city, right? And the gate of the city in olden times was the town square. The town square, meaning the public place that everyone passed through, was not the town square or the village green. It was the gate of the city. So to to understand what you mean by that, you have to think of like Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem, meaning it's not just a two-dimensional gate. It's actually a whole three-dimensional space. And we know this from various places um, uh, like Boaz and Ruth, right? In the Megillat route, when Boaz wants to go do this public ceremony to, to um, acqu- acquire someone who has a dog, please mute, to acquire, or please mute the dog, um, or put the dog in another room. Um, to acquire uh, Ruth and the fields of uh, Elimelech, he goes and assembles the Zikanim, the elders of town. And where are they? And where does he does th- do this? He does this in the gate. He goes to the gate. 
meaning if you go to the mm-hmm. gate of the city, you know, you know that you're going to fa- be able to find the elders and or a minion of people to do a public declaration of a public enactment. That would be like saying, I went to City Hall or I went to the Village Green because I know that that's where people are during the day. And why, by the way, why were people in the city gate in ancient times? Probably because they lived in the city, which was a walled city for safety. Their fields were outside of the city. They'd go outside of the city at night. They'd come back into the city and lock the gates at night. Sorry, they'd go to their fields during the day. They'd come back to the city and lock the gates for safety at night. So the gate of the town is where everyone passes through. That's the public place. So it's a, sorry for this long, long, long explanation. It's another way of saying public domain, right? So, um, and again, you might say, what's different about talking about it in your home and away from writing it, right? Write these words, um, which means another, that's another way of saying, you know, what did people write down in ancient times and Bible times? They would write down like a covenant, okay? So this would be the covenant, or in our modern terms, we might say constitution, okay? This would be the constitution that you should write or incise on your gateway to your homes and on the gateway to your cities. Another way of saying private life and public life family life, and communal life. Okay, so we have four pairs here. So these are four different ways, I think, of saying all the time and everywhere, meaning we Jews do not uh, divide the world into spheres where we say, oh, religion is in this sphere, but not in that sphere. It is different than the American doctrine of separation of church and state, right? So Shema says here, no, there's no separation of church and state. doesn't mean that Jews should be opposed to separation of church and state um, in the United States, although some might make that interpretation, I am not necessarily making that interpretation. But the Shema is saying all spheres of your life, all aspects of your life should be imbued with, guided with these words. Now, three quick interpretations because I want to leave more time. Um, The sages say that this is a command for various mitzvot, right? That's sort of classic interpretation that we're all familiar with. Um, I can't remember. They say the number of mitzvot that are commanded in Shema, but... Teach your children where to fill in. Put a mezuzah up. Um, did I get all of them? There might be more of them in there. Okay. Um, that these are actually commands for specific mitzvot. They actually mean put these words, do certain things with these words of the Shema, right? Some of which are actual physical enactments that in my tefillin, the first paragraph of the Shema is there along with three other parchments. Okay, so that's sort of a classic rabbinic interpretation. Um, If we roll that back to the Bible's shot, and if you remember, I mentioned to you that um, uh, theory hypothesis that this is modeled on an ancient Near Eastern um, suzerain vassal treaty 
with a superior king and a lower king. So that in that context, all this means you must be loyal. Ve'ahavta, in this context, this probably means something like loyal or devoted, right? You must be 100% loyal or devoted, <coughs> excuse me, to Yudke Vavke alone. And how do you embody that or live that? You teach this loyalty to your children, this devotion, and you talk about the commitments that you have all the time and your fealty to your Lord, your suzerain king, um, needs to imbue or inform all of your actions and all of your vision of the world and your home life and your public life. You know, all, all ways of saying everything you do needs to be subordinated to or imbued with your loyalty to your Lord, right? There's no realm where you say, well, this belongs to the king, but this is mine, right? Everything, everything you have, all your resources, all the time, everywhere you function in the world, um, uh, even, even in your family at home, even when you're just alone and going to sleep and in your own thoughts, everything must be subject to your commitment, another word for loyalty, fealty, your commitment to the words that the king has commanded you, okay? So that would be the uh, a second interpretation. That would be pshat about the, the, the loyalty treaty. Third interpretation, which I heard from um, Professor Ruvain Kimmelman uh, from Brandeis years ago when he taught a summer course at JTS when I was in rabbinical school. He didn't say this was a little bit midrashic, but I think he meant that it was a little bit midrashic. He starts with ve'ahavta, love, which we always say, well, you can't command a feeling. So ve'ahavta must mean be loyal or be devoted. And he says it raises the image of a lover. And when lover, which is a concept that we say uh, is, is mostly unfamiliar from the Tanakh, except, of course, from Song of Songs, Shira Shirim, right? Which shows us that, you know, our concept of romantic love, being in love, passion, uh, did exist 2,500 or 3,000 years ago. Um, and he says, uh, Kimmelman says, what do, what, do lovers, what do lovers do when you're falling in love? Anyone who has fallen in love might remember this. You can't stop blabbing. Your friends can't shut you up, right? About you met this wonderful person and she's wonderful. And, and here's what you, you know, and in Shirashirim, it's like, oh my God. And his, and his hair looks like this and his belly looks like that. And his, uh, his thighs, oh my God, his thighs, right? And she keeps telling her girlfriends, the Benot Yerushalayim. So it's, it's like a young lover, someone who's in love, who can't stop talking about their beloved, can't stop thinking about their beloved, um, reads and rereads the words of every love letter, said Kimmelman. I remember him saying this uh, 35 plus years ago uh, when I studied this with him. Um, uh, you, know, I you know, imagine some, I don't know, Mooney, I don't know, 
19th century lover who like writes love notes and tacks them up on the trees of the forest or something like that, right? Dwell on these words always. I think the younger generation, I, I know when I'm gone, my children will have some ancient love letters to discover that are buried in a box somewhere. And this younger generation, I guess their children or grandchildren won't have that because everything is by text. I do have some patients, by the way, who say to me, I kept going back over his texts to figure out what went wrong. So they do have a record, but the record is a, is a text record rather than a handwritten record. Um, most people in, I see in the Hollywood squares here before me are old enough that they probably have some, some written record. So Kimmelman said, this is what lovers do. In other words, the image that's being used is you should be in love with God, right? Which, of course, is what Shir HaShirim is understood classically to be, both by Judaism and Christianity, that um, the image of human love and passion, which is the most intense, the most intense love that human beings generally experience, might be the falling in love romance phase of a dyad, of a couple. And so this is used as a metaphor for how intensely you should love God. That's the classic interpretation of Shira Shirim. So Kimmelman attaches that to this and says, yeah, you should behave like lovers do. You should think about God all the time. You should talk about God all the time. You should want to repeat it over and over again. You should read the love letters over and over again. You should tack those love letters up on the doorposts of your house and on the doorposts of your city. You should tell people about it you know, your friends and your coworkers, okay? Um, everyone should know how much you're in love with God. Now, we later Jews have, you know, tended not to talk about this aspect of relationship with God. You might associate it more with like, I don't know, Teresa of Avila, some medieval Christian mystic. You know, but Hasidut does, Hasidism does talk about dvekut, about wanting to cleave to God. And the Psalms do have passages where they say, I thirst, I just read it yesterday, two days ago, I thirst for God like a, like a deer thirsts for water, right? I'm desperate to find God, just like a deer is desperate to find a place to drink when they're parched. So I just want to say that this idea of wanting to love God in this intense form, although it's not our, I will say, modern American misnagdisha Ashkenazi way of talking about relating to God, usually, certainly is present in some places in Judaism. So although this interpretation is a little bit midrashic, I, I don't want to say it's um, totally alien. Sweetie, would you mind putting the dog in the back of Okay, so three interpretations, loyalty treaty, commanding us to do various mitzvot, or the actions of a lover, and surely there are others. Meyer, do you want to report to us on what Rabbi Sachs says? Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't... And, uh, and, and Meyer, has, Meyer did, dropped it into the chat, so you can read it later, but if you could just give us a summary. Well, basically, it's, a, it's a, the terminology of the word Shema and how unique it is and how many times it says it in Devarim, 
and what is intended to mean. Um, I didn't remember everything he wrote, to be honest with you. Okay, you just put it in our chat, but you didn't remember what he I said. I remembered it last night, and then I read it again this morning very we'll, quickly. And then, we'll give you but, a moment. Uh, we'll give you a moment to think. Any other, again, if we, when you put the whole paragraph about, together. Oh, sorry, yeah, Meyer. He, was, he talks about how it's unique from other people and the way they talk about using the language and how Shmas kind of stands out yeah. as a particularly Jewish thing. Yes. Um, it's definitely worth um, you know, the time to go ahead and spend, you know, a little bit to read the article. Okay. And it's in the chat. And Shema, by the way, Moshe set, uses that verb Shema in Deuteronomy over and over again, right? Of, it's sort of yeah. like, right, listen to what I am telling you, okay? You know, it's sort of like, you need, you know, now hear this, now hear this. Is that like in the military or in summer camp? I don't remember what that's from when they do that over the loudspeaker, right? So he says over and over again, now hear this, okay? So it, it, it seems that this act of you need to hear it and get it and internalize it is a big part of uh, Moshe's message in the book of Deuteronomy. I've also read about how listening is a, a, a more reliable form, a way of finding truth than trusting your eyes sometimes or trusting your touch even. As we know, with um, uh, when the blessings were given to, um, you know, uh, when um, uh, it Jacob. was uh, Esau, you know, uh-huh. yeah. do I feel you? Do I touch you? Are you the hunter? Do I smell you? In the sense, yeah. he wasn't listening to the words. Yes. And therefore gave the blessing to the wrong son. Right. Right. So there's listening. Right. Well, there's listening and touching. There's listening and physicality here, because I want to point out all the things you, uh, I'd like to point out all the things you're supposed to do with these words, I don't know about all, but most of them in this paragraph are somehow concrete physical embodiments. It's not just, and I want you to study this over and over again. Right. I want you to teach it. I want you to write it. I want you to bind it. I want you to incise it. Okay. So we have lots of actually very specific actions. Uh, you know, teachers will say this, you know, it's like multimodal learning right? Um, you're supposed to read it. You're supposed to read it aloud. You're supposed to make flashcards. You're supposed to review the flashcards. You're supposed to have someone quiz you on the flashcards, right? Um, what some, there are some kids who are tactile learners when they're doing their letters. There are teachers who will have them do the blocks and they'll say, that's another mode of learning besides reading and hearing. Tactile can be important. So we have here, you could say, this is multimodal commitment to Hashem's command. One more thought. I just want uh-huh. to, that, this is not from Rabbi Sachs or anybody else, but yep. um, when we put our trillin, you know, you know, in front of our eyes and we also put them on our arms. Yeah. I also think of it in the sense of unifying both our thoughts and our actions. Uh-huh. So not just, you know, a symbolic thing, but it's also reminding us that in all ways we have to, that's right. And that thoughts and action needs to reflect each other. Okay. Sorry. I don't know if you said, I don't know if you meant that, but. No, I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They definitely, right. they, they right. both. And of course, you know, we're reminded by the fact that it's filling in next to our heart and all those things are connected. Yes. Good. Okay. Other thoughts, your associations, when you read this paragraph, Larry. Thank you. Abby. I really appreciate your, your, your teaching today. I'm re- reminded that more than one thing can be true. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea of these, these things, <clears throat> series of merisms. I think you're right about that. Time, space, 
actions and thought and public and private, spanning the, <clears throat> the entirety. I, <clears throat> I don't want, I know you want to end this week. I don't know if you'll be able to do that if you answer my question. It seems to me there are a series of words here that you touched upon that are, some of them are unique and some of them are, are curious in, in this context. And they are shinantam, vidibarta um, isn't so unique um, or problematic, ukshartam, um, the word totofot, in uchtavtam. And it seems to me that you touched upon it, for example, that ukshartam doesn't necessarily mean, it can be you said a tattoo or a tattoo-like thing, but binding or making sure that all of your actions have this imbued with it type of idea. Yeah. But it seems to me that some of these other words are they're, they're, they're a lot of unusual words in a really short paragraph. Yeah. Would you care to comment on any of them? Especially, I'm always curious about Totofot. Well, um, I don't want to comment too much. I mean, the, the two words that are unusual, are really unusual, fair, uh, fairly unusual, I don't know how, I'm sure that's elsewhere in the Bible. I don't know how many times. Totefet, um, which would be the singular of Totafot, um, is certainly unusual. It seems clear to me that B'nai Israel must have understood what Moshe meant when he said it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used it as a metaphor. So I assume it's something that was familiar to them. We know in ancient times there were all kinds of head things that, you know, that we don't have, like um, it says in the Talmud, uh, um, uh, and I think in, my, in the Bible too, that a bride ties something on her head, brides on their bridal day, right? There's something tied, right? We would think of a veil, which isn't really tied, but brides then had something tied. We know that the Kohen Gadol wore a sort of head band. It was, it was a gold flat thing on which it said Kodesh Hashem, a gold flat piece of gold. Sorry for the people who are listening. You can't see me put, uh, do this on my forehead, which was tied with a blue thread, a, a patil techelet. Okay. So there are various things that to us would look curious that presumably in the ancient world looked like, well, that's what you do sometimes. So I can't say anything more than that. The fact that there are different interpretations in the commentators about what a totefet is and the Gemara is because the meaning of it has already been lost, right? Anytime there are multiple, multiple interpretations of a word, that means that no one really knows what the word means, right? And I, I guess I could look up, I'm sure some Bible scholar says there's a cognate word in, in Assyrian or Ugaritic or something like that. And I'll, I'll look that up for you if you like. Um, but other than that, I don't know what to say. I just remember Shinaim, Shinantem, I was once taught, comes from the root of Shinaim, from teeth. Yeah. So right. it's kind of a biting. It could be uh, a biting. It could be teeth sharpening. Right. Uh, it could be uh, the uh, Gemara, the Talmud always says, um, Torah students studying together. Um, it's uh, like like combat right? Chavruta is like a kind of combat, not in the sense of fighting each other, but sort of wrestling and engaging with each other. And if you do that, you get to deeper Torah. Um, so 
yeah, you may give many different interpretations. I could look up a few more for you, but I don't think I have more to say about those, Larry. I meant to include the word mezuzah as well, mezuzot. Is this yeah. the mention of mezuzah here? Yeah. Let's say it again. What's, is that a question? Yeah, is it the first mention of mezuzah in the Torah? Um, it, it's the only mention. There are other mentions of mezuzah as doorposts. There's probably, is there one in Pesach? I'd have to look it up. You smear the blood on the mezuzot? I'd have to look that up. I have to, I'm trying to remember. Um, but yes, it's not that common. Uh, it's a, again, it's clear what it means here. It's clear that it means doorpost. From, it is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, and it's clear what it means. That's not a mystery word. But again, so I think Moshe, if he's, Moshe is trying to teach, he is, when you try to teach someone, you use imagery that will be familiar to them. Just like I would say 24-7 to a modern person, and they'd understand that I meant all the time, Right. So you would, I wouldn't use an obscure term if I was trying to teach someone something, right? So this must have been familiar to them. Thank but you. it is a, but you are correct that there is an awful lot packed into this one paragraph, right? But in contrast to other places in Tavarim where Moshe takes a lot of words to say one thing, right? He uses a lot of words, for example, to say, only worship this God, don't worship other gods, don't bow down to their statues, smash their statues, make sure you don't keep their religion, make sure you keep your own religion, don't be infected by the people who... So he goes on and on and on and on and on in certain passages of Arim to actually say one pretty clear thing. And here it is kind of the opposite. There is an awful lot that's packed into a few short sentences. Yes. Other thoughts about this paragraph and how it resonates for you may resonate for you different times. And it's not a, you don't have to have other resonances than what we've talked about. And you can't, it would be hard for a person to think of all of these aspects twice a day, every day when they said the Shema. So obviously over time, different things will jump out at you as more relevant or less relevant. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, the the halacha says, you have to have kavanah for the first line, all six words. Um, And if you don't have kavanah for every single word after that, that's okay, right? So on one day, you may be thinking about educating children or grandchildren, and how can you be a good Jewish parent or grandparent and make sure that you communicating your Torah values. And on another day, you might be mulling over um, what's my Torah vision. And on another day, you might be mulling over, you know, I don't know. There's something that I think is ethically wrong according to Torah values at the office. Am I going to speak up about it? Or am I going to keep my mouth shut? because it's none of my business and it's the public, it's the office sphere and I should keep my personal values to myself. So on different days, different moments in your life, different seasons, surely there are different things that um, will, will jump out at you to meditate on. Or if you're in a phase of life, a moment of life, when you're angry at God, you might think, how can the Torah command me to love God when I'm feeling 
angry and alienated, right? Doubt is part of faith too, for all people of faith. For all, for, sorry, for many people of serious faith, doubt is a part, doubt at some times is a part of faith also. Ilana? Yeah, I, I am, I'm still stuck thinking about just the word Shema. Um, and, and what you just said about the insistence on having Kavanah for those six words, um, it's like, um, well, two things. One is maybe the Kavanah from those six words, the idea is that that should, um, uh, it's not really the right word, but infiltrate yeah. the rest of what you're, you're saying, you know, whichever things you emphasize or don't. Yeah. But the other thing is just the notion that humans being what we are, that, you know, sometimes we need to hear things more than once. Yes. Shema. Right. Listen up. Listen up. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Um, maybe we think of the, um, the rest of what we call the Shema, the remaining paragraphs, like, you could think of it as if the word Shema comes before every single sentence or every single pairing. Good. Hey, listen up. Hey, pay attention. Teach your children this way. Hey, pay attention. This is how you live at home and publicly. Hey, pay attention. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, That's a good thought upon which to conclude and head into Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Like, you know, we're supposed to... uh, have God's words, I'm going to say seep instead of infiltrate, which is also not a perfect word. Okay. I I didn't like the word. Infuse, infiltrate, infuse, seep, imbue into all our visions and actions. So um, I wish everyone Shana Tova Umtuka, good health for us as individuals and for your families and for the whole world in 5781. So many people have, are commenting online. There is a, a, a um, piyut on Rosh Hashanah. I think it might be in the Sephardi liturgy, not uh, Ashkenazi liturgy, where the um, liturgical poem, where the refrain is, Tichle shana v'kililoteha, tachel shana ubirchoteha. Tichle with a chaf and tachel with a chet. And it means may the previous year and its curses end and may the new year and its blessings begin. Um, And most years I read that and I think like, oh, this is like written from that Jewish, the lachrymose Jewish point of view that things are always bad. But people are sending that line around a lot this year because it's really not the lachrymose Jewish view. It really is like, oh, 5780 has really ended on a bummer kind of note. And so we're all praying that 5781 will be a lot better. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.